0: okay thanks thanks everyone for coming um yeah today's talk is going to be on inflammation um, and inflammatory markers and how we use them in an infectious disease decision making um, inflammation of course is one of those things as infectious disease physicians and practitioners we are always thinking about it whether we intuitively thinking about it knowingly or unknowingly because Every time we examine a patient and we look for tenderness, we're looking for inflammation, looking for um, imaging and evaluating whether there is consolidation or thickening of a bowel wall or empyema. Those are all related somehow to inflammation. It's hard to define. It's one of those things that people say, I know it when I see it, but it's hard to say. That's a Webster dictionary definition of inflammation. Um, but perhaps um, the oldest and probably the most descriptive um, explanation or definition of the inflammation was given by this gentleman, Olius Celsius, um, from a long time ago. Uh, this is a different Celsius, it's not the one that describes the temperature scale. Um, this gentleman apparently was an ency- encyclopedist and he was a medical writer and he wrote this book called On Medicine or De Medicina and he was, um, at least it was ascribed to him that he was the first to describe what we today know as the cardinal signs of inflammation, the calor, rubor, dolor, tumor, and functio lisa, or loss of function. Um, And then inflammation is associated with an acute phase reaction. Um, And that is, again, another not very clearly defined term, but we intuitively think about it all the time, every time we assess patients. The acute phase generally refers to a series of um, changes that happen in the body. Um, Some are pathological, some are physiological. Um, Those include, uh, partially, uh, an increase in temperature, hemodynamic changes such as the heart rate and blood pressure change, responses at the cellular level, and upregulation of a number of peptides, which uh, would be kind of the focus of this talk. Um, It's also important to note that most of these changes actually occur during chronic inflammation, although they are referred to as acute phase reactants. So they do happen to linger on when there is chronic inflammation. And as far as the peptides go, the acute phase reactant peptide is conventionally defined as a change in its serum value by 25% from the baseline. Uh, And it could be in either direction, an increase or a decrease um, of a given peptide. Um, And of course, inflammation, as you all know, uh, is an outcome of a number of insults or stimuli. And those could be infectious or non-infectious as we um, look at them. They could be mechanical, autoimmune, apoptotic, neoplastic, and you name it. Um, And all of these stimuli are thought to lead to a production of cytokines, which uh, is a precursor of whatever follows as an acute phase reaction. And the majority of these um, cytokines are interleukins. Um, The majority are produced in the liver, but not all of them. Um, They could be produced in the site of the injury or the insult by tissue, macrophages, um, dendritic cells, uh, antigen-presenting cells, and neuroendocrine cells. Uh, It's also important to note that there is a marked variation in how soon these peptides are produced and how much they are produced, the magnitude and the the timing is very different. Some of them happen within hours of an insult, um, such as um, procalcitonin and CRP, whereas other measures such as ESR may signify events that happened days or sometimes maybe even weeks later. Um, so that's also kind of some, something important to keep in mind. It's also intuitively something we always think as we evaluate patients, um, and people have debated this is inflammation beneficial or not uh, and that is not a settled question I don't think um, but the main reason I have this slide is to um, to mention that inflammation and acute phase reaction and in the, in the cascade of events uh, leads to a number of uh, changes in the serum uh, value of a number of peptides and some non-peptide substances such as iron, and copper, and zinc, and other altered metabolisms, uh, which sometimes we also evaluate in our um, assessment of patients with an acute infection or a chronic infection. Um, Here is a not by no means an exhaustive list of acute phase reactants. Um, that are uh, known to either increase or decrease following a given stimulus. Um, Sometimes they are categorized into groups such as the complement groups, the coagulation factors, proteinases, and transport proteins, and some don't fit anywhere and they are miscellaneous. It's important to note that there's a few peptides that are actually decreased during an acute phase, Um, but there are a few that we always look for. Uh, including the CRP, the ESR, procalcitonin, um, and uh, perhaps uh, the coagulation-associated peptides that we sometimes look at as well. Um, The acute phase reaction, or these peptides and non-peptides, are believed to follow signaling by cytokines and interleukins. And uh, at last count, there are at least 40 different peptides that are known to induce acute phase reaction Um, and they all have different cells that they are generated from and they have different targets and different ligands that they bind to. Uh, Suffices to say that there's a complex (coughs) network of uh, sequences of uh, peptide generation that leads in the end to the uh, formation of acute phase reactant proteins that we monitor. Um, We kind of mentioned this Um, and of course the Macrophages, especially the tissue macrophages, are the main sites of the uh, cytokines. Um, it can happen at the level of an organ or a tissue, such as a muscle um, or organ, such as uh, a liver. The two major uh, interleukins that are the uh, stimuli that follow um, bacterial or any other tissue injury or inflammation are the IL-1 and IL-6. <coughs> Excuse me. But there are more than uh, 40, as, as we saw. Um, some are not thought to be interleukins, but, you know, have different names, but they are part of that same family, such as interferon gamma and TNF-alpha uh, are, are also major pl- players. Um, totally unrelated to this, you know, this cytokine release sometimes is associated with adverse reactions, sometimes even uh, fatal outcomes. And that's a very interesting area of uh, research now trying to inhibit this um, cytokine release. And as uh, we rotate through Moffitt, um, for example, we, you know, you'll notice that anti-IL-6 has been used. TOSI, which uh, historically was an anti-chronic inflammation, but now being used as an anti-acute <coughs> inflammation and cytokine storm. Um, So from this list, uh, we're uh, going to start by talking about the CRP or the C-reactive protein. Um, It was first described in this paper uh, in 1930, uh, Journal of Experimental Medicine, this is the actual paper. And it was reported in in that study that patients who had pneumonia, uh, pneumococcal pneumonia, had something in their serum which reacted with the C or the uh, carboxy. uh, uh, component of, of of this antigen and hence the name C-reactive protein was given to it. Um, and it has been known uh, since <laughs> then. Um, the C-reactive protein is a pentamere. Is, although it's a, a single a peptide, the molecule itself actually aggregates itself into its quaternary structure as a series of five peptides in one. A pentamere is a family of Uh, many other peptides that um, have such uh, conformation, known as pentraxins. It is a family of the pathogen-associated molecular pattern recognition receptor, or pumper, sometimes referred to as. um, It interacts with uh, phosphocholine of uh, cell membranes, mainly bacterial, but also of uh, human cells. And the ultimate result is believed to be that it promotes phagocytosis. And that might be the main uh, function why uh, it is released. Um, so that bacterial debris and cellular debris will be cleared of the site of an insult, injury, and inflammation. Um, it's mainly synthesized in the liver. The CRP that we measure uh, is actually derived in the liver. <clears throat> Um, it's mainly in response to IL-6 and IL-1, TNF-alpha, from tissue macrophages. Um, and non hepatic production has also been described. It does have a rapid rise. Um, experimentally, if you induce uh, or inject uh, bacterial components, you can actually see uh, elevation of CRP within two hours. Um, it is a very short-lived peptide, less than a day, about 18 hours. Um, it has a constant clearance from uh, the circulation. Therefore, if we see there's an elevation of CRP, it is determined by the rate of production and not by the rate of clearance. Therefore, the rate of production is intuitively believed to be associated with the degree of a stimulus that is present. So, rising CRP, therefore, may signify an ongoing process of some sort, either inflammatory, (coughs) infectious, of course, which would be uh, in our case. Uh, It's relatively easy to measure, uh, and therefore, it's in rather um, widespread use. And, of course, uh, the production can be inhibited in people that have um, liver failure. And when there is an increased interferon uh, production, for example, concomitant viral infection. Um, It's been validated as an excellent marker of inflammation that has has numerous studies have been done since its discovery many years ago. Um, And we mentioned already that the degree of rise um, is concomitant with intensity of the stimulus that is present. Um, Mentioned this interferon alpha story Um, There is um, some exception to this rule that you have an acute inflammation, therefore you have an elevated uh, CRP, and an important exception to that rule is um, SLE, um, believed to be, again, related to interferon production, and unless SLE patients have serositis or involvement of um, a membrane, um, CRP level may not be elevated despite presence of inflammation. So... You know, hence the exception. And a few other collagen vascular disorders, including scleroderma and dermatomyositis, where the CRP response may not be as elevated, regardless of uh, inflammation. And indeed, in SLE patients, the presence of an elevated CRP may signify infection more than it does in other patients for that reason. And you also see that this HSCRP, uh, which for all intensive purposes, means the same thing as CRP, the highly sensitive CRP. the only difference between the two is HSCRP is measured using a more sensitive method. Uh, And the results are comparable, and it means the same thing. Um, Some uh, studies uh, that have used uh, enhanced data, the Health and Nutrition Survey, which uh, is done periodically in the US, over 21,000 Uh, US uh, residents, CRP was evaluated in them and it it varied um, among different age groups and sex and ethnicity. Um, The older people are and the female gender and uh, African-Americans have higher levels. Exactly why not sure, but it's believed that it does signify higher inflammation whenever it is present, regardless of when that happens. It is not normally distributed in population, unlike other uh, measures, such as uh, white blood cell count. It is not Gaussian; it's a skewed um, distribution. And the upper uh, level normal, for the reason that it goes up, was age. Uh, people had come up with age over 50 for men, and age over 50 plus 0.6. Like, if you're 50 years old, one may be okay for you, so and so forth, so with with advancing age. And it may have actually significance into the non-infectious inflammation that is present in older people that is associated with coronary disease, for example, or tissue degeneration. Um, It's important to note also that there is no uniformity in the reporting of the CRP. Some people report, some labs reported in milligram per liter, some in milligram per deciliter, so it may not be comparable. So it's, just, it's important to kind of make sure those units are similar. And a low-level uh, CRP elevation has been an area of intense interest uh, for uh, signifying metabolic inflammation or the metabolic syndrome or coronary risk factors. Um, and somebody actually studied this and even people that are unmarried had Higher low level of CRP, so why that is is not clear. I don't think they measured whether it's happily married or not. So, <laughs> you know, but anyhow, that is the this is the, from the New England um, paper um, showing the skewed nature of the distribution of CRP in populations. Um, a CRP elevation strengthens the case for infections in general in the right setting, meaning if you're looking, investigating infections. Uh, In one study from CID, uh, people that had a 10 milligram per deciliter CRP or higher had an 80% chance of having an infection diagnosed in them. Those probably were skewed because they were being investigated for bacterial infections. Um, And important to note that viral infections had very low or no elevations of CRP. So therefore, it may have that. Uh, distinct distinction. Um, so, we will. I will come uh, later to how uh, we use them in infectious disease, but we'll go to the next uh, marker, which is the one that I I structured this talk to. Um, CRP, the ones that we actually frequently use, but CRP being uh, the most common and and. SED rate is the next one, so we'll go to that one. Um, and in this list, it, it falls in a miscellaneous area. And, and ESR, of course, is a rather um, interesting measure because we don't really actually measure anything when you measure ESR. You're measuring the rate of sedimentation of the red cell. The classic method is called the Westergreen method. You essentially take an ml, one ml of blood, pipette it into this tube, let it stand in gravity, and measure how much of it settles. There's another method called the Wintrow method, which uses a 2 ml blood and differently anticoagulated, but a very simple old test that has been there. And and therefore, you're measuring the propensity of the red cells to to form rouleaux and fall to the bottom of this column of um, test tube. Um, therefore, we're measuring the balance between the pro- and the anti-sedimentation forces. Uh, fibrinogen happens to be the most important factor which promotes ESR, and, and therefore it accounts for uh, greater than 60% of the sed rate elevation. But a few other um, peptides, such as immunoglobulins, uh, also contribute to that. Um, it has something to do with weight and charge and this thing called the Zeta potential of the red cells. And fibrinogen, in addition to weight, uh, is believed that it has something to do with um, changing the sialic acid (coughs) residues of red cells, which actually uh, makes them less likely to attract each other, therefore fall to the the bottom, and therefore increase the ESR. Um, I think we talked about that. Um, And of course, it's affected by the red cell shape, size, number, and charge. So anything that affects those things would change the ESR. (coughs) Um, Briefly mention this, uh, that's about uh, more than three-fourths of the rise in ESR is due to fibrinogen, therefore it's really a measure of fibrinogen. Um, Fibrinogen is believed to cause that ESR elevation or increased propensity for red cells to settle to the bottom due to neutralizing sialic acid residues, therefore impeding electrical potential. Um, fibrinogen is also produced in the liver, um, therefore somehow we're measuring liver function as well. So if you have impaired liver function, important to keep that in mind as you evaluate your ESR. Um, and it's under the regulation of cytokines. Again, no surprise there. They're all like that. Um, and other peptides may also contribute to elevation of ESR. It's also important to note that people that are anemic may have an increased ESR. The red (coughs) cells just fall more easily. And older age and obesity and a female gender, just like the ESR, (coughs) also associated with an increased ESR or increased marker of um, inflammation. And medications, oral contraceptives and heparin are the two major ones, but there's uh, many other uh, medications that are mentioned is also important to note. Um, Kidney failure at all stages including nephrotic syndrome, chronic kidney disease, ESRD, have high ESRs and nearly all of them have some degree of ESR elevation. So the utility is somewhat um, limited in that patient population. Uh, Sickle cell disease, um, like we said, the size and shape and Charge of the red cell would affect how how much red cell settles, <coughs> so reduced by uh, sickle cell, spherocytosis, and isocytosis, which anemia would explain that. Microcytosis, uh, iron deficiency, and leukocytosis, and heart failure probably dilution, and hyperbilirubinemia and cachexia, the very people that we actually check ESR on, may also have um, elevated ESR for that reason. Despite all those caveats, however, if you have an ESR of more than 100, that's almost always significant. And in one study from Archives of uh, Internal Medicine, which is an uh, old study, there's a one in three chance that you have an infectious process if you have an ESR that is high. Uh, the infections that were mentioned mainly were those. So once you see in the slide, TB, endocarditis, some deep, deep-seated abscess and osteo, I should say osteo, not osteo. Um, and a neoplastic process or some <coughs> rheumatologic disorders. Um, it's also important to note that because ESR is determined by factors that have um, very long half lives, such as fibrinogen, which has a half-life of four days, so the elevation of ESR could be due to events that happened days or maybe even weeks earlier. So it doesn't necessarily show an acute-acute Um, event and it's also sometimes referred to as as vasculitis screening and the case for vasculitis is markedly decreased if you have a normal um, ESR. Uh, The two inflammatory markers don't always um, correspond Uh, so you have some discordance between the ESR and CRP. One reason could be the acuity like how soon you are looking for this inflammatory marker but other other than the timing the uh, presence of monoclonal gamopathies uh, multiple myelomas and SLE um, would be uh, other reasons and as uh, the table depicts the situations where you have high ESR, low CRP and low ESR and high CRP. so basically the uh, acute infection such as an acute UTI you may not see an elevated ESR whereas Situations that give you the changes we talked about uh, in the red cells may cause a high ASRN and, and a normal uh, CRP And the next peptide we talk about next marker is a uh, procalcitonin, which is uh, also in the miscellaneous um, part of um, that uh, categorization uh, procalcitonin is um, a relatively newcomer to the uh, inflammatory uh, marker Um, seen it is a precursor of calcitonin which is um, a thyroid hormone uh, and produced by ordinarily normally produced by the C cells of the thyroid. It was described in 1975 um, and renewed interest in the last maybe 10 years on its use. Um, Normal serum levels are below detection limit and the thinking is that the procalcitonin that is made in the thyroid gland Actually, doesn't get out of the thyroid um, it is uh, changed to calcitonin and under the control of uh, calcium uh, metabolism and associated uh, pathways however uh, you also get increased production of procalcitonin um, from non-thyroidal tissues um, through mechanisms that are still very poorly understood um, is believed to primarily be produced by parenchymal cells uh, of an epithelial cells and endothelial cells. There is some reports that lung tissue, GI tissue may have a higher uh, propensity to produce procalcitonin, but that is, is still debatable. The levels may rise as high as 100 micrograms, although the detection limit is below 0.01, which is huge. It's in a thousand or more than a thousand uh, times elevation Um, And of of course, for that reason, in healthy people, because uh, the procalcitonin made constitutively in the thyroid is not released, the level is undetectable or very low. Um, As a slide just showing how the peptide is made, the pre-pro, it has a signal sequence associated with it. It never leaves the the thyroid ordinarily, change it to calcitonin, and therefore very low levels. Whereas extra-thyroidal production leads to the release of the procalcitonin and very little change to calcitonin. The gene for procalcitonin is believed to have a promoter on it, meaning it has an area, a binding site for a number of um, chemicals, including bacterial endotoxins, which leads to the activation of the gene and therefore the production, which is believed to be how bacterial infections lead to an increased procalcitonin. Um, People have shown that um, the the gene has um, upstream binding sites for NF-kappa-B which is something that follows, for example, a bacterial infection, um, activated TNF, interleukins, and some people (coughs) even think bacterial endotoxin directly potentially binds to the the site. Um, We mentioned that, you know, because for that lung and GI tract, predilection. Some people think it may have a special significance and we'll come to that uh, in subsequent slides. And the two calcitonin productions are believed to be regulated differentially, meaning the thyroid one is under the calcium metabolism, whereas this extra thyroidal production is uh, under a different genetic regulation. And procalcitonin peaks within six hours of an insult. So it's one of uh, a very early uh, marker of inflammation, um, and of course, procalcitonin is measured in thyro- thyroid people who had thyroidectomy, um, suggesting that uh, the inflammatory or infection-related procalcitonin is probably has very little to do with the thyroid gland. Um, you mentioned that already. Uh, we kind of mentioned this as well, again, to emphasize that, um, you know, the reason why procalcitonin probably is associated with bacterial infections is because bacterial-induced cytokines may induce, you know, the gene production. Um, exactly what it does is not actually known. Some people debate why would the body make a peptide that has no function, as than just a marker for infectious disease. Um, <laughs> Um, some people think it may actually be a promoter of inflammation. Um, there may be some calcium metabolism associated with infection, pain signaling in nitrous oxide um, signaling, uh, which also has something to do with um, um, pain itself and, and oxidation. And, uh, and people that, have, that are confirmed to have infection, a higher level is associated with a worse outcome. Therefore, people think maybe it has something to do, something other than just being a marker, it may have something to do with other metabolic pathways that are yet unknown. Um, and of course, when we talk about all these inflammatory markers uh, before uh, putting everything together, we're always looking at them in the context of um, infection as infectious disease markers. And one of the things that we really look at is leukocytosis, which, by the way, is also an acute phase reaction. And most of the leukocytosis that we uh, evaluate is believed to be due to neutrophilia, but it could be due to other components of the cells. It could be due to lymphocytosis, eosinophilia. Um, Important to note that half of the white cells that are produced in circulation Are actually adherent to the endothelium, therefore factors that demarginate um, these cells from the endothelium would lead to uh, neutrophilia and leukocytosis and of course an increased white blood cell count therefore could be either due to a myeloid production or a demargination uh, from the circulation. Certain, certain pharmacologic agents, uh, we may or may not be paying attention, uh, could be causes of uh, leukocytosis, especially in the ICU setting. Uh, catecholamines, for example, you know, on, your, on either it is endogenous or exogenously administered, leading to demargination. We typically think about steroids, which primarily are believed to actually lead to increased production in the bone marrow rather than demargination, although that was kind of, you know, the main things that we thought before. And of course, all of this, just like uh, the other inflammatory markers, is under cytokine control uh, from the same. um. And it's important to also note that as a white count, the neutrophils actually last only about 10 hours in the circulation. Therefore, when you see a rising levels, um, it would mean that you have an increased production because they don't survive more than some people actually say six hours, so. And, and then of course we have the idea of the shift to the left, and it was interesting for me when I uh, researched this. People say nobody actually knows where that came from. <coughs> so one of the thought was as the manual the differential, somebody, you know, the take counts, the hand may shift to the left because the, the Milo and the juvenile forms are on the left side, so. But that, yeah. so people are you know you're looking at the microscope and you're doing your, your counting. So on the hand, so I, I thought that was interesting. It's also important to note in our white count uh, reports. Uh, I haven't seen this lately, but this was something that repeatedly used to be mentioned in the white counts of toxic granulations in doll bodies. Um, so uh, now I'll come to that to that uh, in the next slide. But there is considerable variability in uh, white count elevation, and it's important to, to remember that a, two, uh, about two standard deviations of the people, that's 5% of the people actually, would have a high white count. So uh, occasional count, consults may say white count of 11.8 or 12.5, so including this thing is not infectious, it could also be important to keep in mind that it could actually be normal because this is normally distributed unlike uh, the one we spoke before. In 2.5% of the population would have actually kind of value, normal value, higher than the upper border of normal. Um, I thought this was an interesting statement. An acute infection should be suspected in someone that has a Y count of more than 25. That's uh, verbatim from up to date. Um, And certain bacteria lead to a high white count. Uh, this was uh, something I mentioned. I haven't seen this lately, but you may see this um, reported in your white blood cell count. Toxic granulation um, as well as dual bodies may signify an acute Im- infection or infectious process uh, in addition to your uh, leukocytosis. Um, a prospective study of 400 patients, about half or a little more than half had infection. When the white count's more than 15%, and when it's more than 30%, 25% had CDF. I thought that was an interesting finding. Um, and then, of course, other causes of leukocytosis, which we uh, always look at, for include medications, but physiological stress was mentioned in there as well, which I am not sure um, that would be such a high percentage, 38%. Um, this was a, you know, a fairly important journal, a CID journal, uh, where where this was uh, reported. So in summary, um, ESR of more than 100 is almost always significant and extremely high CRP is associated with a very high likelihood of uh, infection, 80%. Procalcitonin may be more sensitive and specific than CRP. uh, And initially high procalcitonin levels may indicate a severe disease and a worse outcome And then, of course, we always think, how do we put this together? What does it mean to us when we evaluate a patient? So I chose to have a few selected disease entities and see how this all fits into that picture. And one of the most uh, common is skin and skin structure infections. Um, And then ASR and CRP on admission may predict severity and longer hospitalization. This was uh, from Journal of Infections. This has been validated actually in subsequent studies as well and when you have a necrotizing fasciitis or necrotizing skin infection, having a very high CRP has a bad prognostic sign, a worse outcome, therefore may call for a more aggressive course Uh, and it's associated or included in this risk index called Larenakin index, a laboratory risk index for necrotizing fasciitis and in people we evaluate for diabetes, tooth, and osteomyelitis, having a high ESR uh, increases the likelihood of the diagnosis. That also is not news to this audience, I'm sure. Um, and then in cases of spondylodiscitis, ESR elevation uh, was found in more than 90% of cases. Therefore, not having an elevated ESR if, especially if the diagnosis is questionable may uh, make the diagnosis questionable or strengthen the case for that the average values were about 50 to 80 and a foreign ESR of more than 25 percent from the baseline had a good prognostic predictor and the CRP uh, levels were measured at the end of the study in this particular study from 2010 and they corresponded with a successful um, treatment and absence of recurrence, so uh, which is something we uh, typically do as well. Prosthetic joint infections, CRP and ESR may actually be elevated due to the surgery itself, so that's important to keep. Uh, so early on, it may be difficult to differentiate or use these um, inflammatory markers. Uh, interestingly, IL-6 measurement itself in the serum and in the joint fluid. Uh, supposedly had a better diagnostic accuracy compared to CRP for prosthetic joint infections but uh, measurement is difficult for IL-6 and it's not routinely available and the presence of a normal ESR or CRP was a reliable predictor of the absence of a prosthetic joint infection at least according to those uh, studies. In sepsis, um, there was a pooled analysis of uh, median procalcitonin level of 1.1, which had uh, close to 80% sensitivity and specificity in predicting sepsis. And people that had higher values had worse outcomes, and survivors had low outcomes. This was from the Lancet 2013. And that is becoming um, standard. I don't think it's standard of care yet, but um, it is, we routinely. Uh, check for procalcitonin now. Pneumonia is another entity that um, these inflammatory markers, especially procalcitonin, has been increasingly used for diagnosis as well as prognosis. Initiation and stopping of antibiotics. Um, Here are randomized controlled trials of 302 patients where antibiotic decisions were based on the presence or absence of an elevated procalcitonin. Uh, led to a significant reduction of antibiotic use and the outcomes were not different so it didn't lead to worse outcome. And there was another meta analysis which we actually used in our journal club, a fairly recent study from 2018 in The Lancet uh, which involved 6,000 plus patients um, which showed reduced mortality. when procalcitonin was used for antibiotic decisions. And FDA had actually approved, uh, about a year ago, the use of procalcitonin for um, treatment or antibiotic decision support in respiratory tract infection, both upper and lower. Um, Although I don't think it's in uh, very widespread use yet. Endocarditis. If you have elevated CRP after a week of therapy, uh, the clinical outcomes tended to be worse. And initial values uh, that are higher than 0.5 also predicted a worse outcome, including uh, valve abscesses and perforations um, and mortality. So again, this is the the other summary, I guess I I said summary already. So the CRP, ESR, and procalcitonin continue to have a very important role in infectious disease diagnostics and prognostics. Um, They have, obviously, they have to be used in the context and together with the other clinical data. There are newer and more sensitive and potentially more specific markers uh, that are being investigated and likely to come to clinical practice in the near future. And I have just a sample of uh, some that are uh, potentially in the horizon, including IL-6, if the measurement can be standardized, possibly IL-8, 27, and TNF-alpha itself. Uh, Serum amyloid A, or SAA, probably has the highest potential, I think. It's very similar to CRP, but maybe even more sensitive and rise quicker and it may be more specific, but measurements have not been standardized. Um, There's pentroxine 3 which is similar to CRP, like it's a pathogen-associated molecular pattern recognition receptor. Uh, it might have um, significance in uh, prognosticating sepsis. Interferon gamma inducible protein 10, or IP10, uh, may have um, some value in deciding whether there is a viral infection, especially in, um, in some patient populations, such as Moffitt, for example, in cancer patients. Tor-like receptor 2 and CD64 uh, is upregulated in viral and bacterial infections. Um, potentially could become um, a clinical tool in the future. It's another peptide called TREM1, or triggering receptor expressed on myeloid cells. um, Has been used in pediatrics for a diagnosis of UTI, not in widespread use, mainly uh, in experimental situations, but potentially, again, another uh, peptide that could uh, come. There's another peptide called presepsin, a CD4 fragment, um, which has been suggested as um, measure of the clearance of blood cultures, uh, before the blood cultures, uh, especially in C and other bloodstream infections. So it might be an important peptide for antibiotic stewardship. Uh, and then there's a few others, the MIF-1, microphage, migratory inhibitor factors, and hepcidin, which has something to do with iron binding. So all of these are, at this point, experimental, um, but potentially uh, coming to market in the future. And here are the references, and thank you for listening.
1: I have a question. Um, At our facility at the VA, and you may have detected this when when you've rotated with us, there's a push by pathology and medicine away from the sed rate. And you beautifully brought out the confounders that can affect the sed rate, anything from Anemia or polycythemia to gender differences to other things From looking at different inflammatory markers. Are you as confident about the validity of the sed rate for what we use it for? Do you think that it would be more practical and more? Accurate to stick with the C-reactive protein or do you think they have utility when used together?
0: I think I, I from everything that I read I mean, it looks like the, I think the utility of the sed rate would be for something that we would like to follow over a long period of time. I'm talking about weeks rather than days. Um, the main thing that it is mentioned in association with are either collagen vascular disorders such as temporal arthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, that sort of thing, or chronic inflammations such as osteomyelitis or spondylodiscitis. you know, same, same type of thing. Potentially a deep-seated abscess, because most of it, like seventy percent of the reason the red cells settle, is theoretically at least due to fibrinogen, which is a, you know, peptide that has a four-day half-life. Um, so if if it keeps on accumulating over, so it would have to be like two half-lives are eight days. So it would probably not be very useful to, if we test. Somebody with an acute pneumonia with ESR probably wouldn't be very useful. Um, I'm not sure the use of both of them together. I know that's what we do in, for spondylodiscitis and vertebral osteo. Everything that I see says, the one thing that people have looked at is end of therapy. If you have a high CRP, you have a problem. Um, following the SED rate weekly, maybe even you know two weekly, some people do it it's probably a reasonable thing. It would give some hint, are we having an increased fibrinogen production or increased immunoglobulin, the same thing, or is that coming down and say it rate was 75 and it's 50, you know, something could happen. It went up to 100, you know, would you be worried? And then you measure it again, still 100, then probably, you know, you would start to worry. So, I mean, that's, I don't know if that is a good answer. Um, weekly measuring of CRP, like in if it is such an acute, a short half-life um, of hours, maybe a day, and then the level is dependent on the production, not on the clearance. So if, if you measure it and the level is, hasn't changed much, it would mean that you have an ongoing production. Um, but if the treatment is like a 3 months duration, perhaps measuring it, you know, that frequently may not. I mean it may be costly, it may have you know, it may be problematic, I don't know. Yes,
1: Doctor. Uh, following ESR I think it's more like a long term plan. Uh, also especially in the patients that have the you know surgeries you mentioned and even the once you put them on the treatment your ESR might initially actually go up and then it will kind of play and start going down. So this is why uh, I think CRP in the beginning of the treatment might In your um, discussion on white blood cells as a surrogate marker for uh, acute phase reaction, or not just a surrogate, but a direct marker, you mentioned that certain bacterial infections were associated with a higher level of bite, yeah. uh, of leukocytosis. One of them you said was the clostridial infections, one you said yep. was strep pneumo. Uh, I can't remember the third one, maybe staph or something. The staph was in there the staff, too, clostridium, do, of obviously. Yeah, you know, clostridium, definitely. Yeah. Is that, yeah, staph, is that, do, do to toxin, is that toxin mediated increases in leukocytes or why, why those bacteria in general, do we know?
0: Um, yeah. I, I think the, so all of these elevations of acute phase reaction, including the leukocytosis and neutrophilia are under cytokine control, right? So, they, so the thinking is if you have more cytokine release, then you probably have a, a more response, a, a pronounced response. Um, They probably work through the same mechanism like procalcitonin, where you have a promoter of the gene that has to be turned on, therefore you have something is driving it. Um, I mean, I don't think we know everything there is to know about it. Um, But the thinking is if you have a higher, you know, some of the bacteria probably have more of this particular molecule, that would be the promoter of the gene, therefore they drive, you know, um, so that's, I mean, for example, Clostridium difficile, in fact, they say even in the absence of diarrhea, if you have close to one third of the people that had a white count of 30 or 30,000 or more had C. diff eventually, at least in that one study. So I mean, we have seen that even in, in practice, you know, sometimes you just see the white count is driven up, you don't have diarrhea, and eventually, so we always, of course, are in tune and like, well, check for C. diff, you know, if diarrhea. Right. <laughs> Mm. Actually yeah.
1: comment a lot of cardiology literatures on CRP and the uh, relations with CAT have looked at it at depth and still wondering and even there was attempted to use statins for that chronic inflammation. Uh, but that's something else other than I think people look at. Yeah, uh,
0: that's uh important point you raise exactly. Um yeah CRP especially the HSCRP it came into being for that purpose because the CRP that was measured was not sensitive enough to pick slight variations like 0.5 or 0.8 although it's the same CRP so they had now they have newer machines that would detect even lower levels and people believe however the two drivers are very different the metabolic inflammation in fact there is some people even propose a different name, meta inflammation. Yeah. There's, you know, for like metabolic syndrome. Um, and of course, inflammation is as a heart of believed to be as a heart of a lot of pathologies, if not all, including neoplasm, atherosclerosis, dementia, arthritis, and then of course, you know, infections is, it, a big deal. Although in our case, it's mes- mostly it's an acute process. So it's believed to be like a, a different process, you know, that drives it and perhaps different, cytokines even, like the LP little a. I, I didn't mention it in there, but that's another measure that I think has something to do with meta-inflammation and low levels of elevations of CRP, which increases your risk of having coronary disease. And then CRP may very well be just an indicator of something else going on. You know, it doesn't necessarily mean, although people have shown actually injecting CRP itself, Um, and they have also shown CRP itself in atherosclerotic plaques, like inside of it, you know, that you can actually immunostain it and show it in there. So, you know, there's some thinking maybe itself is involved, or is it just a sign of something else happening in there? Okay. Yeah, procalcitonin is a very, inter- I think it says it's still an ongoing, to this day, people haven't settled where exactly is it produced, you know, w- which cells actually pro- lead to the infection associated procalcitonin that, has, that hasn't been settled. The other one, the one from the C cells of the, you know, the thyroid that, is, that has been signed of a lot of agreement, uh, people think, you know, and of course, why lung, you know, why is like FDA even approved it only for lung Associated infection, whether it's upper or lower tract infections. Even that is questionable, although some people think maybe the lung, in, in, indigenous uh, macrophages, may have more propensity to produce it, but that uh, hasn't been settled yet.
1: I guess if you think about it, one of the major utilities of inflammatory markers is not any one measurement, but the trend. And so and I always I was try to get that feeling in my patients, which way is the inflammatory marker heading, because you can, you can derive a lot from that. When we see patients with extraordinarily high procalcitonins, is that correlated with any particular phenomenon?
0: Yeah, I mean, it's said that it would correlate, it correlates to worse outcomes when you, when you have high, pretty high, like 100, right, Like like your patient, which it could be, you know, although the usual numbers you see is, you know, 1.5 or 3 or something like that. Um, so it's believed to be associated with, you know, had a bad prognosis. It would mean like an increased driver of this uh, inflammation uh, in certain conditions. I mean, in, in ICU setting, definitely. I mean, people have associated it with worse outcomes, organ failures and, and so forth. Uh, and I think it's true with, with lung infections as well. Um.
1: Any other right. questions?
0: Thank you. Thank you.